Oh God, we hear this call of Jesus, and with the disciples, we wonder what it means for us. Give us this day clarity, give us courage, give us boldness to follow in this way, wherever it may lead. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our sermon today continues this Lenten theme and preaching on the way of the cross. Today, our focus is a way of giving. Our passage this morning, which James has read for us, is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark, a moment that can rightly be called the crossroads of the whole story. For one thing, we're right in the middle of Mark's 16 chapters. The first eight focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and the final eight focus on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and to the cross, and today we are right there in the middle of it. The story, too, itself is set geographically in the middle. It is just outside of Caesarea Philippi, some 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, and there is a, a junction, an intersection there, because there are multiple paths that meet, and at least one path stretches back. You know, you just take a right and you follow the signs back to Galilee. And we know that way. It's the path that is back to comfort and ease, the familiar fishing boats, the old ways of doing and being, back to the place before we met Jesus where we would attract little attention. Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, was a quaint village along the little sea of Galilee, the kind of place meant for quiet walks with companions and friends and sage-like meditations under the branches of the olive trees. You can go back there from Caesarea, but there is another way, another road there, and that one stretches out ahead. That one leads to Jerusalem, and that one is toward Roman occupation. It's towards military power. It's toward the empire. This is a way we learn that is toward risk and danger. This is a way of vulnerability and trust in God. This is a way of self-giving love. This is a way that comes to challenge the patterns and the powers of this world. And all the while, the cross is in the distance coming more sharply into view. Now we know which path Jesus chooses. And the disciples are coming to see it too. As here, in Mark 8, he tells them about it for the very first time. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. He said it very plainly, some translations say. And when you've said it that clearly, and when you've heard it that sharply, well, there's just no going back from that. From here on, things will never be the same. From here on, he begins to teach and proclaim the things that they had not yet heard about what it means to follow him to Jerusalem and what it will mean to continue along this way, this way of the cross. Now this Lent, we are attempting to follow in this same way, which is a way that is different from some of the paths and the roads that we might naturally choose in our lives. Following Jesus not only amidst the comforts of our Galilee-like existence, but also when things are more risky, more demanding, more costly for us. 
And of course, all along this way of discipleship that we walk, there are off-ramps, there are easy exits, there are rest stops, and there are U-turns. It is easy to turn back, to go home, to fade into whatever we were doing before we met Him and He called us. And some of us might be tempted, along with the disciples, to do just that, especially when we hear things like what He says today, if you want to become my followers, then you need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a complicated symbol throughout Christian history. And it is likely complicated for some of us personally, too, in our own spiritual journeys. When this sanctuary was first constructed in the 1950s, there was no cross. The cross that currently hangs in our baptistry was added some years later. Dr. Randall Lally, who served our church shortly after the sanctuary construction as associate pastor, and then years later as senior pastor, attributed this fact to a kind of minimalist approach to the architecture that was clean and clear, as we can see all about us. It's reflective of the Protestant Reformation, the removal of distractions and symbols in a room flooded with pure light, no filter. Indeed, even when the cross in the baptistry was added, it was not merely or mostly a theological or liturgical statement, but a commemoration of the long pastorate of the retiring Dr. Claude Bowen. Now, throughout Lent, we closed the baptistry doors, and the shimmering gold cross is hidden, but we replace it, don't we? We replace it with a cross that you cannot miss. A rugged wooden cross that is at the very center of our sanctuary. This tradition of orienting toward the cross during the season of Lent, it predates my time here as pastor. This meditative, out-of-the-ordinary practice. And this tradition, whoever started it, wanted to make sure that we just couldn't miss the symbolism. And so a cross was constructed that befits the soaring ceilings of this sanctuary. My previous congregation had a cross of similar size in a much smaller space, but it was enormous. And it was elevated high above the chancel. It was fashioned from rustic wood. It was stained dark mahogany. One day the doorbell rang at Metro Baptist Church and someone wanted to speak to the pastor, which normally at that church door, located in the middle of Manhattan, meant that I was about to disappoint someone, someone who was looking for money, someone who needed a bus ticket, someone who was asking for a place to sleep, to which I would have to hand them my meager offering of a snack bag or a toiletry kit or a listing of all of the supportive resources they could seek out in the city. But this time I came to the door and I found a woman whose request was simply to come into our sanctuary because she wanted to see the cross. So I walked with her and her partner into the sanctuary and she stood in front of it pensively, quietly. Was she praying? I didn't know. And then she turned and she offered her hand. She said, I didn't tell you my name. My name is Marilyn Gabriel. I'm an artist, and back in the late 1980s, after this church moved into this building, I sculpted that cross. She began to tell me the story of how she'd met the pastor, Gene Bolin, at the time. 
and how she donated her services, hoping that the cross would be a powerful symbol for the generations to follow, that it would be this reminder of the way of Jesus. And she also let me in on the secret that the rustic cross fashioned from these rugged boards was actually made out of sculpted styrofoam. Foam that had been molded and stained and made to look like wood and had been affixed to a PVC pipe frame that I had never once looked closely enough to notice before. And crosses come in all kinds of shapes and sizes made of various materials and meanings. Affixed to various stories and experiences in our lives and it can be complicated. Because the symbol has been variously claimed to glorify suffering or to symbolize Christian triumph and military might or to underscore the endurance of pain that you were never meant to carry, that was never willed by God. That's part of what makes this message of Jesus so difficult for us to hear the way that it would have been heard those years ago. For those listening in to Jesus' call right there along the road, there was absolutely nothing that was religious or redemptive about a cross. There was only the meaning that had been predetermined by the Roman Empire who constructed the cross as a means for execution for military punishment of political criminals and dissidents. There was no veneer of redemption. There was no hint of life. There was no connection with God. This was an instrument of suffering and death for those condemned. And it was also a symbol of fear and intimidation for everyone else who could see it. It was not uncommon for the road to Rome and occupied Jerusalem to be lined with crosses. This attempt to scare the life out of any who passed by as they went from their home to the market or the market to the temple or from the temple to the house of a friend. All the while, there were these looming, intimidating reminders that Rome was running things, that Rome was signing the death certificates, that Rome was covering the tombs with stones, that Rome, in other words, was controlling your life. And this was the road to Jerusalem. This was the way that Jesus was calling the disciples to walk right past all of these rugged instruments of death that announced the empire's power over you. And this is the kind of story that is still announced to plenty of people. Dr. Shannon Kirshner is the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. And she describes how one day the bell at her church rang and a woman asked to see the pastor. The woman had passed the church on her way to work and had decided to stop, and she had seen Reverend Shannon Kirscher's name on the church's sign, and she figured that since she was a woman who was a pastor, that she might be sympathetic and understanding to her as she began to tell about the violence and abuse that occurred in her home. And when it turned from her to her children, this woman said it was the last straw. She was seeking help. I have my own church, she said. But my pastor, he doesn't understand. I once told him what was happening with my husband, and my, and my pastor told me that it must be my cross to bear. She went on to describe how she'd been told that she needed to carry her cross just like Jesus did, needed to deny herself in order to save this covenant of marriage, to keep the family together. And tragically, so tragically, Sherry's experience with this passage and others like it is not all that out of the ordinary. 
the theologian Dolores Williams has written about the real danger of interpreting Jesus' words throughout history to apply that women, and particularly, as Dr. Williams notes, black women, must suffer and stay in their place in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And Dr. Williams points out that phrases like take up your cross have been interpreted in ways harmful and destructive, so much so that she struggles to find words for Jesus' death and finds herself much more drawn to Jesus' life. It's complicated. And I wonder if that's part of what prompts Peter's reaction when Jesus foretells his suffering and death. Peter can't even fathom it. Suffering and death. The shock is so great that he doesn't even hear the part about rising on the third day. And so Peter protests. And he protests not only for himself, but for the whole group, for all of us. He protests for any who had lived their lives with crosses overshadowing them, announcing power over their lives, heralding the control of Rome over life and death. God forbid it, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. And suddenly, upon hearing this, that road back to Galilee, it must have looked so smooth and appealing, and I wonder how many thought about leaving. I wonder how many of us do still. But of course, if they had, if they had left then and there, if they had turned around and gone back to the familiar, they would have missed the next thing that Jesus said. They would have missed the most important thing that Jesus says, the thing that changes the meaning, the thing that takes the power away from any outside force and instead shares the truth of God's will for us, which is to find your life. You come to understand what it is to offer it, to give it in ways that are bold and compelling and sometimes risky, and find in that that it returns to you is something new, reborn, resurrected even. In other words, the cross to which Jesus is calling them, calling all of us, the way of that cross that contrasts the ways of this world, it is not in the end a path to death, but to a life like we've never imagined it. It's not a way of suffering, but a way of living. By calling us to take up a cross, Jesus is telling us about another way of being, another path than the ones that we've known and we've walked. Jesus is reminding us to stop giving fear the power over what we do, to stop letting death or our reticence determine our next move, to refuse to let the normal way of doing things be the last word in our living. So to take up your cross is to remember that it is God who holds your life, God who calls you forward, who directs your steps. To take up your cross is to proclaim that it is God under whose power you live and move and have your being. It is not Rome, it is not the empire. It is not any form of abuse, not the economy, not your struggles, not your stress, not your illness, not your wealth, not your poverty, not your security, not your status, not even your closest relationships, God is the one alone to whom you belong. To take up your cross is to see how this way changes you, how it might help you to release the notion that you're at the center of things. Maybe you'll let go of that status quo, run-of-the-mill life in Galilee. 
where you live as though life is a possession to be protected, and you instead start to follow Jesus to Jerusalem and discover what it means to be fully and abundantly alive. Maybe you'll be less occupied with what's secure or the shortcut or the smoothest road, and instead you'll follow a path to abundant living. Maybe instead of remaining where you are and how you are and who you are, you'll follow to places that you've not been in ways that you didn't know were possible to become more than you knew you could be. Stop trying to grasp your life. Stop trying to control it and manage it. Stop trying to save it, in other words. You will find it in giving. You will find it in offering. The poet Linda Unders has expressed this beautifully in her wonderful poem, which asks that traditional revivalist question, are you saved? All of this talk of saving souls, she writes, when souls were never meant to save, like Sunday clothes that give out at the seams, they're made for wear. They come with a lifetime guarantee. Don't save your soul. Pour it out like rain on cracked parched earth. As for me, I will spend my soul playing it out like sticky string into the world so that I can catch every last thing I touch. Yes, next time someone asks, is your soul saved? Say, no. It's spent. 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 Jesus believes we can live this way. That in our living, we can display this kind of vulnerability and openness. We can offer our lives and find them returning to us anew. It is the turning point. And where will we go from here? In the middle of the week recently, I saw someone who was sitting in our sanctuary. They were sitting here in that good light that comes in in the late afternoon. And I learned that they had come and they had rang the church bell. They asked for a quiet place, a place to think and to pray. They were offered the help that we had to give. One of our staff had prayed with them and sat with them and heard some of their story. And then they had been told, this is God's house and you are welcome here. And so they were, and they sat resting in the open and the airy light in the same space where we worship, where we share at the table, where children joyfully stream into the aisles, where we gather to celebrate saints, where we experience the wideness of God's love and mercy, where we seek to become people who find our lives by giving them away. This is God's house, after all, and all, all are welcome. And of course, right behind this woman, right in the middle of it all, there is this symbol, this symbol so large as to fill the room, and a symbol in its own rugged way reminding us every time we gather around it, that amidst all of the ways of this world, there is another way. It is the way of Jesus. 
and may we walk it from here together. Amen.